Well, good evening, everybody. We're going to pray, and then we're going to see if we can explore this text together and understand it. So will you join me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we do ask that as we reflect on what we've just heard, your living and active word, that it would indeed be living and active in us. So help us to understand what it is that you would have us know. And I pray, Lord, that I might speak faithfully and that your spirit and your word would be at work moulding us and shaping us to be more like our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by giving you an interesting sheep farming tip. I don't know how many of you farm sheep, but lock this away. If you strike the shepherd, the sheep sheep will scatter. That little piece of wisdom is very old. It's as old as Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7, and probably much older than that. Um, On that occasion, God spoke about a time where he would indeed strike shepherds and let sheep scatter. It's also wisdom that Jesus knew and thought was worth reminding his disciples on the night before he was killed. But more of that in a moment. But just think about that little piece of wisdom. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And by strike, I'm not suggesting just a a fist to the jaw. To strike the shepherd means to kill the shepherd, to strike him down. And, And if you do that, if you kill the shepherd, then the sheep scatter. And that makes sense because sheep aren't the kind of animals that kind of hang around in the face of danger. Even if you've walked into a paddock and kind of... They don't kind of go, you know, they're not kind of up for a fight, itching for it. None of them would ever kind of whip out a sword and lop off their attacker's ears. Sheep sheep aren't like that. They flee. And that's exactly what this little piece of wisdom tells you. You strike the shepherd and sheep will scatter. Good to know. Actually, it's essential to understand this because sitting behind that is another assumption. Because it assumes that whilst the shepherd is alive, leading their sheep, well then, they stick around. They don't scatter. In fact, what we discover is so deep is the concern for the shepherd, for the sheep, that um, they'll follow him everywhere. In fact, Jesus knows that too. Remember, we've been moving through John's Gospel, and back in John chapter 10, he's had a lot to say about sheep and what it means to care for them and and he talks about good shepherding being about even knowing sheep's name a sheep's name and leading them John 10 verse 3 he'd even be prepared to say that a good shepherd would fight the predator not even to run away it's not that he would lob sheep in front of a vicious attacking lion wolf bear whatever it might be but John 10 12 tells us astonishingly that a shepherd would even be prepared to lay down his life for the sheep. All because the shepherd is actually coming to to give the sheep life, to make sure that they're provided for and that they've got food and they're protected. Not to take life from them, but to give them life. And in fact, John 10.10 tells you it's life to the full. So it's not surprising then that sheep are fiercely loyal to their shepherds. Shepherd can walk out in front and the sheep will just dotingly follow on behind, so dutifully, John 10 verse 4. They're hopelessly devoted to their shepherds. 
In fact, so much so that they actually know their shepherd's distinct voice and wouldn't even listen to a stranger's voice, John 10 verse 5. They know their shepherd. And you say, well, of course they do. Because it's the shepherd that protects and provides everything that a sheep needs. I mean, where else are they to go? And so when you look at the flock and you see how it responds to the shepherd, you'd be right to say, just look at them, the way they follow, the way they respond. The sheep love the shepherd and they happily follow his lead and welcome his protection. But strike the shepherd. Strike him down and kill him. And the sheep scatter. And of course, from the sheep's point of view, you'd have to say, well, there wouldn't be anything more terrifying than that scene. Imagine there in the flock and some wolf just tears through and takes out the shepherd straight to the jugular and there he is bleeding out on the ground and you're alone, defenseless and vulnerable and you say, well, run away, run away. It's every sheep for themselves. We're on our own now. Of course, if you thought like that, And you thought that made perfect sense, that little piece of wisdom, because there the shepherd is, he's been struck down, so scatter. Then Jesus' words to his disciples in John chapter 14 and verse 15 through to 24 tell us we couldn't be more wrong. Because Jesus has his disciples, his flock, 11 gathered around him in the upper room. He's been telling them explicitly, that he's going to be struck down. He's going to be leaving them. And whilst they've been following him, they won't be able to follow him where he's going because the shepherd will be killed. And if you were reading this episode in Matthew's account or in Mark's account, then when you got to the bit where Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him, you'd read a verse like this in Matthew 24, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night, you'll all fall away on account of me, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. See, Jesus knows what awaits. He knows he's going to the cross where the the good shepherd will be struck down and there revealed, in fact, to be the spotless lamb. A lamb without any defect or any sin whose death is actually a sacrifice, a needed sacrifice. Because in obedience to the Father's will, the Lamb of God obeys. So that all those who love and who follow the Son will receive forgiveness and life everlasting. So Jesus can say back in John chapter 10 verse 14, I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father And I lay down my life for the sheep. And so when you follow the logic, if you strike the shepherd, then the shepherdless sheep will scatter. But notice that Jesus on the night before he struck down reveals another paradigm for his sheep, for his followers. He says, strike the shepherd and the sheep are to keep obeying. Keep loving, keep following. In the next chapter, he'll say the sheep are to remain, to abide. Keep loving me, being hopelessly devoted to me. Actually, what you discover, it's exactly the same paradigm that was operating while he was with them. 
this way of love and following, of trusting and obeying, of sheep listening and following their good shepherd. And so Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commands. Keep on with the way of delight and duty, and you will not be alone. You won't be orphaned. For verse 16 says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, another helper, to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. No need to flee, no need not to abide, remain. Keep trusting, keep obeying. But I think when we hear this, and to our ears, and we hear Jesus say, if you love me, keep my commandments, then it just doesn't sound like it fits right. It sounds like Jesus is putting a condition on, 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 on what we would have understood to be his grace, that he's going to give us what we don't deserve, but somehow we've got to earn it. We've got to, we've got to keep on loving and, and, and keep these commands. And first of all, that sounds like an impossible task. Who, who could possibly do that? Love like that and have obedience like that. And isn't Jesus about to die because he knows that no one but himself has actually kept the commandments? And, and, and secondly, isn't this, isn't this legalism? Isn't this saying your, your salvation or your, your, your love or your response for me, any good thing that I might give you, is conditioned on, on something you've got to do? Works-based righteousness. Do this, love me, keep my commandments. So what's with this verse in chapter 14, verse 15? Love me, keep my commands and dot, dot, dot. What is it with love and obedience being linked together? Because actually it's not, you may have noticed this as we read through it, it's not just in this verse. Four times in the span of ten verses, Jesus will link these two ideas together. Just run your eyes down. It's there in verse 15, but look to verse 21 and verse, the first half of verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23 in the first part, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And verse 24 and the first part is the flip of that. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And actually, Jesus is only being consistent with what he said many times before. If he went back to John chapter 8 and verse 31, he says, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And in the next chapter, that we'll come to in a few weeks' time, Jesus is about to build on this. In a time when he's talking about the vine and the branches... He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, in verse 10. In verse 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. The fact that Jesus says the same thing so many times isn't an indication that he's just good with repetition, but that this is a serious truth. That there's something about love and obedience, about trusting and obeying. See, what do we discover as we move through this passage and understand what God's Word has to say on this? The, the first thing you'd want to say is, as you look through, you think it must matter to God. Of course, it is true that you are saved by grace and that there's nothing that you can do that can merit your favour with God. 
But grace will do something to you and in you. If there's not a change, then grace has not been received. It'll mean being dead to self and alive in Christ and loving Jesus means doing what he says. Actually, what this tells us is that Jesus is Lord above all things, including us. See, he may be described in this gospel and elsewhere as your friend and as your brother, but he is Lord. In fact, Jesus' own brother, James, says, if you have faith, trust, belief, without an outworking, without works, it's dead. James 2, verse 26. So for us to suggest that we love and we follow Jesus, but we're not so interested in any form of obedience to the things that he said, or to following him, that's the heart of hypocrisy. Jesus is saying, if you love me, the result will be you will keep my commands. And what you realise as you look through John's Gospel and see what Jesus is saying to his disciples on this night, he's saying this is not giving you a checklist that you need to tick off of the things that you've got to do. Here's all the good things, tick, tick, tick. Here's all the bad things, didn't do those. Excellent. That's legalism. And legalism is contrary to the Gospel. In fact, you can't read Jesus and see that he's saying that's what you've got to do to earn my love. Instead... It's actually a response to the love that we've received. It's about a life of freedom in Christ, a freedom to be dead to the enslavement of sin and going our own way and a slave to loving the righteousness that's in Christ. It's about keeping in step with his spirit. It's a response to love received. So Paul in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17 says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, of doing a whole lot of legalistic things that are put before you, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. To be a follower of Jesus, one of his sheep is a call to be responsive to the one that now lives within you. The one who now abides with you dwells with you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in this passage in verse 17 that he dwells with you and will be in you. It's to be consistent with the one that is giving vitality to your life, invigorating you. In verse 23 he says, we will come to them and make our home with them. That to come to trust and to love Jesus actually means to be filled with his spirit and it overflows in an outworking of obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And and of course, that's the third thing perhaps to pick up from this, is that obedience flows not out of fear or out of duty, but out of love. You can't miss that in this passage. The many times he refers to loving him, falling in love with him. Jesus tells his disciples that the ones who obey him are the ones who truly love him. And he'll call those who truly love him to take up their cross and to follow him. Not because we have to, but because we want to and choose to. Oh, it'll take a commitment, it'll take discipline, but you can't be under or in receipt of grace without demonstrating that desire to be disciplined in that area. 
Of course, it sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? Here is grace that you get credited to your account what you don't deserve, but it, but it comes in a way that it costs everything as it outworks itself in your life. It touches every aspect of your life. You can't earn it. It's a free gift. But when you receive it and you submit to it, it transforms everything you are and all that you do. And it's a real, genuine transformation. Born out of a voluntary response. You see, Judas's question, not Judas Iscariot, he's gone, the, and the other Judas that's part of the 11, asks a question in verse 22. And it's a great question. Judas says, why, well, why do we get to see this and everyone else misses out? Jesus, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the whole world? Why not show up, God? Why not make yourself visible to the whole world so that no one can deny you? Make it just so clear that all debates are ended and everyone sees that you are the sovereign Lord. Well, in response to that question, Jesus repeats exactly what he's already said. He says, it's because I want obedience to flow from love. Those who love me will obey. Those who obey without love, well, what's the value of that? Obedience motivated by fear, well, that's the antithesis of love. John will go on and write a letter And in that letter, he'll make this even more clear. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, he says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. See, what Judas is asking for is to say, Look, show the whole world just how sovereign and dominant you are. But Jesus says that's only going to bring lip service obedience. Just a a sense of duty and obligation. It's... It's not love if it's not free. And so God doesn't create machines. He creates humanity with a will and a freedom to choose. And so Jesus meets with his disciples and he holds out that offer. If you love me, keep my commands. Keep trusting and keep following. Because he's interested in creating a loving fellowship with all humanity. And so if you love God, it will be your desire to please him. And so I wonder, as you come to that, you think, well, what of my obedience? Do I want to be more obedient? Are there areas of my life where my obedience to the things that God commands could increase? Well, what do I do? Do I work harder? Do I make that? Well, you fall more in love with Jesus, don't you? You draw closer to him. And you see what he is like. I was thinking about that this week especially in light of that idea of striking the shepherd and the sheep scattering. See, imagine if you had a flock and imagine if that event had just taken place. The wolf is torn out of the forest and it's latched on to your shepherd or the shepherd of this flock. And, and there it is, the shepherd slain. And the sheep are in the process of scattering and you grab one because you want to do an interview. And his name's Keith, it turns out. And you say, Keith, before you flee, can I just ask you a couple of questions? And Keith's like, what? (laughs) He's just terrified, right? And the first question, he says, look, how are you feeling? He's darting around, he's terrified. Now he's being held up. He wants to do what he's supposed to do. The shepherd's been struck down. He wants to scatter. But here I am, I'm asking him a series of questions. And he says, I'm terrified, if you really want to know. I'm numb. I'm grief struck. 
I'm angry, I, I'm working through the stages of grief, grief, but I'm a long way from acceptance. I've got to tell you that, I just want to get out of here. And then you say, well, just before you go, Keith, I've got just another question. Aren't you just a little bit happy to be finally liberated from the shepherd? Keith looks you at the eyes, he says, what? What are you talking about, liberated for the shepherd? Slightly happy? Not at all. I'm gutted. I'm terrified. Why on earth would I be happy at this? The shepherd was the one that, that would, would take us out and take us to crops and feed us. And then he'd direct us to water. And sometimes he'd say, don't go there. And it was because there was a wolf or a bear. And he loved us. There was times where he put himself in front of danger that we might be spared. There was times where every night he'd take us into an enclosure and make sure we were safe. Why on earth would I be happy to be liberated from the shepherd? Now I'm terrified, I'm on my own and I'm out of here. Well, listen, before you go, just wouldn't, wouldn't you have liked just a moment to go your own way and express yourself and be free, Keith? No. No, why would I want to do that? I saw that happen once. There was 99 of us and there we were and we watched Tony just kind of walk off into the distance. We're like, Tony, what are you doing? And Tony goes, well, I just want to be free. I want to be me. I want to... And, and you know, that isn't freedom. That's lost. A sheep on its own, without the protection of the shepherd, without that guidance and that love. Tony was so vulnerable, but you know, the shepherd, as good as he is, loved us, protected the 99 and went and found the one that was lost and then brought it back and rejoiced over the one. Oh, and that sheep and all of us so enthralled with being back safe with the shepherd. But now he's been struck down and we're out of here. How ridiculous for a sheep to take some delight in being free from the loving care and the protection and the provision and the wisdom of the good shepherd. But of course... Sometimes we do that, don't we? we? We don't like what the commands, the obedience, the faithful duty might look like. And so we want to push back against the shepherd. And you say, how ridiculous. It's about life and protection. And, and of course, Keith knows that. But Keith's wrong about something else. He's wrong about the idea that he's all alone. Or at least the disciples that night are told that they will not be left alone. It's not like God calls them to obedience and then says, you're on your own, I'll leave you to it. In verse 18, Jesus says, as a promise to them all, I will not leave you as orphans. In verse 20, he says, I am in you. In verse 23, he says, we as a reference to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Trinity itself will make our home with you. We will dwell and you will not be alone. Oh, you might be dispersed and scattered, but we go with you, never alone. And just think about what Jesus is saying, that the Father, the Holy Spirit and himself will be with you forever, never forsaken no matter where you are. That's a shepherd worth loving. 
That's a father worth listening to. That's a spirit worth keeping in step with. Look at verse 16. I'll ask the father and he will give you another helper, another advocate to be with you forever. We're going to spend more time next week and in a few weeks thinking about the work and the function of the Holy Spirit. But look at what he says here. Here will come another helper. And when he speaks about this other helper, he's not talking about the father and he's not talking about himself because he's the first helper. The second helper is the Holy Spirit. That's made clear down in verse 26. But what you notice is that when Jesus returns to heaven, the Father will give the Holy Spirit and he promises it. In verse 17, it's described as the Spirit of truth. That the world won't receive that because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This helper is the spirit of truth. And even if you just latch on to the single idea that the help that he brings to the disciple is that he opens the mind and the heart to the glorious truth about Jesus. And he says, as a promise to his disciples, he's with you. So Jesus is with them there in the upper room, in the presence with them. But in the future and in a new way, he will pour out his spirit and be with them after the ascension. In verse 18, he says, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so what Jesus says is that he gives us what orphans and what sheep need. Protection and provision and guidance. And Jesus is that to those who follow him, his disciples. He'll not leave us without help. And he so loves them that he tells them, verse 19, yet a a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. He's saying in three days, I'll die. Sorry, I will die and in three days, I'll be raised from the dead. You won't see me and then you will see me. And when you see me, you'll be assured in your hearts, that as you see Jesus bodily resurrected, that you'll know that I and the Father are one and I've got victory over sin and death. And because I live, you also will live. And verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. You have this incredible assurance and I'm giving it to you. Assurance that I and the Father are one And that you and I are bound together forever and I pour out my spirit in you and never leave you. And if death couldn't separate us, then what could? Jesus' comfort to his disciples that night and to us is to say, I'm with you. Oh, he may have been struck, the shepherd struck down, but the sheep need not scatter. I'm with you forevermore. And think about what that means for a moment. This spirit that now dwells in the believer, that guides us in all truth. That this obedience and this righteousness that we have is is not from ourselves, but is God working in us, empowering us. And that's why it's not legalism. It's not anything that you could do or muster up in yourself. 
Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, I'm dead. And therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He's taken up home there. And I think the question for us is then to ask, is he at home there? In us? Are we making room for him to come in and dwell and guide and to lead us in obedience? That we might live out his obedience and his righteousness, that we might live by the Spirit's direction, keeping in step with the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says that actually can be thought of like fruit growing within you. That change and that transformation that might come where the fruit of the Spirit bears itself out in love and in joy and in peace and in forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Is that the transforming work of the obedience that comes through faith, through loving Jesus? And following him. Of course, none of those things you can do on your own or even sustain on your own. And Jesus' invitation is to stop trying and allow his spirit to be at work, submitting to it and following. To so loving Jesus and following the good shepherd that it just seems absurd like it does for Keith. To reject his direction and his commands, and his call on your life. And of course, perhaps you hear all of that and you say, well, it's, it's all nice, but in theory. But Jesus doesn't let you do that. Because when you look to Jesus, you see this exact pattern worked out in his life, don't you? The one who submits in obedience out of his love to the Father. In fact, you see it in this passage in the very last sentence. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Here he is again. As he speaks to his disciples and teaches them, he is lovingly submitting to the will and the way of his Father. He'll go from here to the Garden of Gethsemane and he'll pray that a cup might be taken from him, a cup that he would drink unto death. But then he says, not my will, but yours. And Jesus does only what his father tells him. Because the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to be obedient to the will of the father. He gives us the model of obedience. Perfect submission. You don't look to Jesus and say, look, here's the theory. Do as I say, but not as I do. But here is what I do. And what does he do? Because of a world that is lost in sin, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Because the father's will was to crush him. And to pour out his wrath against sin. That he would die for the sin of the world. Broken that the sheep wouldn't be. Slain that they might 
live. And his blood poured out, not so that the sheep would scatter, but so that a new agreement, a new covenant could be written where we could love and receive grace because we would get what we don't deserve, the perfect, sinless life of the Lamb of God slain for us and our sin paid for, that we might receive his righteousness, that we might be welcomed. so that he might die in our place and demonstrate his power and victory over death, he rises again. And the good shepherd's not dead. The land that was slain is victorious and is enthroned and reigns and rules, ascends to the right hand of the Father, more alive than he's ever been. And he pours out his spirit. So he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And he calls for us to love him. Do you love him? A shepherd like that? He says, if you love me, keep following. Keep obeying. Keep my commands. And I'll ask the Father and I'll pour out the Spirit and we will be with you forevermore. On that same night, they shared this meal. They broke bread and shared a cup and Jesus said, keep doing this. Do it in remembrance of me that you might proclaim my death and my return until I come again. Keep abiding in this meal. And so tonight we're going to share it. We're going to keep doing it. Keep feeding by faith on the one that was slain for us, that has given us life, that we might be sustained. And so we take these symbols and we give thanks. For the shepherd was struck down. And the sheep won't scatter. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's a generous invitation from the Good Shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that act of obedience. And as we look at our own lives and we see disobedience in us, we see our own willfulness, we ask again for your forgiveness. We come with repentant lips. We ask your Spirit to be at work in us, bearing fruit, convicting us, Lord, and guiding us in a way that is in step with your spirit and reflecting the very nature of the Lord that we follow. And so tonight, Lord, we come and we thank you. And we ask that you might equip us and help us as we seek to obey and to follow, that we respond in love to the love that we have received we thank you for a body that was broken and blood poured out be with us now as we share this meal together in jesus name amen